I come to you just one day removed from Unsinkable's very first official live show at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island in Michigan. Now, I've done meetups before and live streams before and talks before, but this was the podcast's very first official live recording. And I'm still giddy and high from the experience. I edited the live recording on the plane yesterday coming home. It didn't require much. I I, I am giving you the show pretty much fully intact, save for a sound check at the beginning and some random noises at the end. I cannot fully describe in audio format how this weekend was. If you follow the show on Instagram, I did post some videos and some photos from the weekend. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, From Friday to Sunday, the Grand Hotel really partially became 1912. Everything from elaborate Titanic-inspired meal to historic talks to just the time slip feel of walking down the long porch at the Grand and seeing attendees in full 1912 costuming. So if you blocked out maybe one person out of the corner in the corner of your eye that was wearing a (laughs) t-shirt, you could, if you just got a straight through line, which I did a couple of times down the porch to the Titanic attendees in their beautiful clothing, it really felt like a time slip. It was so magical. Mackinac Island is a dream. It's always been my dream to go. It's such a, a amazing pocket of the world. And the Grand Hotel is this astounding lifeblood of it. Built in 1887, one of only 11 hotels of its kind. Built during this era, wooden structures, you know, built to be vacation spots in the late 19th century for Americans running away from the crowd of the cities uh, during this period. There used to be hundreds and hundreds more historic hotels like this throughout the country. Only 11 survive, and the Grand is one of them. Sitting on the porch, really, truly, <laughs> you you feel like you're back in another time. But it's also bright and airy and modern, and everywhere around us, families and couples were having the start of their summer, the sounds of summer coming to life. It was just glorious to be there for this weekend. I want to thank Kay and everybody that works at the Grand for literally rolling out the red carpet for us and for everybody. There's red carpet when you arrive on the steps. I brought my friend Aaron along as a producer, my best friend uh, for many, many years, and we had such a wonderful experience from food to drink to just walking around the property and exploring every nook and cranny. So thank you to the Grand. I really encourage you to be on the lookout for the information about Titanic Weekend for next year. I will make sure to post info as soon as that's available. This is an annual event that's coming back. This was the first year back after COVID, but hopefully they'll be able to keep this going for many more years. It is just a great way to experience Mackinac. So I encourage you to look for that info uh, throughout the year as well. So I'll get you to the live show. Uh, It was 
fun. <laughs> uh, a lot of people attending the conference were in their 1912 costumes when they attended the show. So a few things you should know. At the end, during the question and answer period, I refer to John Jacob Astor as if he's in the room, and that's because he kind of was. Uh, there was one of the attendees portraying him sitting just about 10 feet from me, <laughs> which made for a just crazy wild experience. I posted the photo on Instagram, so go check it out. But Ida and Isidore Strauss were at my live show, uh, two attendees, and just the most accurate garb for the Strausses that you could imagine. And Isidore, quote unquote, even pulled a business card out of his pocket. And I thought this man was perhaps a writer or historian giving me his business card. I got home and I was unpacking my backpack and realized the business card literally says Isidore Strauss. So incredible. Uh, great photo. It just was, I mean, the topic, as you'll hear, has some very somber and, and, and of course, serious moments. But it was such an enjoyable experience to get to share all of this uh, with people live. Uh, one other thing you should know is I do reference the the talk that was given prior to mine at the Titanic Weekend event. And that was given by Bob Taggett, who is the house historian for the Grand Hotel and also works and, and just immerses himself in the study of all of the hotels of this area era that are similar to the Grand. I encourage you to look him up. His talk was phenomenal. I wish I had it recorded too and could share it with you. Uh, it perfectly led into my talk because it, 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 was about the construction of the hotel, but also the construction of this class of wealthy elite people in the late 1900s and how and why they expected the luxury of a hotel like the Grand, um, everything from the dining to leisure activities. And uh, he was just funny and charming and uh, so knowledgeable, and I could have listened to him for hours. So shout out to Bob. And again, thank you to everybody at The Grand. I look forward to working with you more in the future. Hopefully would love to. And and everybody, if you've ever thought about going to Mackinac, do it. I will be taking my family back as soon as I possibly can. And my kids, I know, will just absolutely love it. So Mackinac is a dream. This experience was a dream. I'll get you right to it. Enjoy Unsinkable's first of hopefully many live shows. Thank you guys for all of your support. I want to thank Kay and everybody here at the Grand for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I'm going to sit down. It's a little awkward, but I think it'll be comfortable to talk to you. Um, I, you may hear my voice shaking a little bit because it's so surreal to me to be here. I started the podcast about research about three years ago, and I never imagined it would take me all around the world but it has. Last year, it took me to Belfast, to Liverpool, 
to the tiny vi- like village, not even a town of Adderghul, where 14 of the Irish passengers aboard Titanic were from. Uh, I've been all over the world with this thing, and now I'm here with you guys. And it's such a pleasure, and it's wonderful to see everybody's period clothing. It's beautiful. Uh, when we arrived yesterday, I felt like I'd stepped back in time. So it's lovely to be here. Um, everywhere that I've gone, that I have studied Titanic, all of the Titanic places, food and drink are such an elemental part of how we remember Titanic, how we think about Titanic. And it's going on, obviously, this weekend here. And so I thought it would be a really wonderful thing to talk to you about. I, When I was in Belfast this past summer, I was fortunate to stay at the Titanic Hotel there. And the offices of Harland and Wolf, which, as you know, built Titanic, have been transformed into a bar program there. They have transformed the drawing room into this beautiful, lit, just mecca. Uh, There are models of Titanic everywhere. They hire the most incredible bartenders. And I had a punch romaine right there in the Harland and Wolf drawing room. Of course, there's the iconic photo, uh, you may have seen it, of, of men hard at work on the plans for Titanic in that room. And that experience has really stuck with me. So I've researched a lot of the pre-prohibition cocktails, and a lot of my research in the last year has been into the life of food and drink aboard Titanic. So I'm L.A. Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast on Mackinac Island. And today I want to talk to you about champagne and food and drink and all of the work that it took to make Titanic's first and unfortunately only voyage in its culinary life. Um, just a little snippet of what was on board Titanic. 36,000 apples, 13,000 grapefruits, 40 tons of potatoes, 800 asparagus bundles. Uh, I, in my mind, I visualize them like tied <laughs> into tiny little bundles. Uh, 40,000 fresh eggs, 8,000 cigars, of course, and 63 cases of champagne. Um, this is the tiniest snippet of what would have boarded in Southampton for this voyage. For the chefs, the sauciers, the bakers, the pantry men, everybody who was responsible on the ship for caring for the food. This is the tiniest snippet of what would have been in their care. Now, Bob's talk right before this, uh, and when listeners listen to this as a podcast episode, I'll have to uh, tell them about Bob in the intro so that they know. His talk was fantastic, and it was absolutely perfect for a lead-in into this conversation because his setup of the 
the process of generational wealth and the generation that would have started coming here in the 1880s and 1890s sets you up perfectly for understanding what passengers on Titanic expected out of their experience. So they were a leisure class. Now, many of them worked very hard, but I do always refer to them as a leisure class for exactly what Bob said. There was an expectation of luxury at every turn. And so White Star Line, they weren't making a summer memory, like Bob said about this place, but they were, they were selling memories. They were selling an, uh, an ocean liner memory. They were selling the experience of being on the sea in a fancy hotel. So if you were in first class on Titanic, which I'm sure many of you already know, you were expecting a first class hotel experience and you were also expecting a first class restaurant experience. And this was the heyday of restaurant and celebrity chef culture in Britain particularly. So I'll talk about it in a moment, but there are a couple of celebrity chefs of the time that influenced all of the dishes on Titanic. This was also the era of the birth of the true restaurant experience in Britain. Uh, many of you who know some French history may know that in France, it was already the thing. But in Britain, until the late 19th century, women particularly didn't go out to eat. They entertained in their homes. And it wasn't very respectable to be seen out and about dining away from your home if you were part of this elite culture. And so the restaurant culture comes to Britain and all of these hotels that already were just dripping in luxury decide to convert their on-site spaces and restaurants into you know, a la carte restaurants, like we will talk about in a minute on Titanic, but a full experience for men and women to wear their best attire and to go out to eat. So there's the restaurant culture, hotel culture. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The rise of the celebrity chef and then White Star Line and other liners, the Hamburg America line in Germany. We'll talk about that. They decide that this is also that they want a piece of the pie. And this is what they're going to do. They're going to convert their liners into these luxury spaces as well. So hotels like this, we're selling you a summer memory. These liners like Titanic, we're selling you memories on the ocean. Um, so I think it was just an aside, Bob's talk was fantastic and I can't wait to speak with him more. And I think it's the perfect segue into this. Um, so we don't have a lot of menus from Titanic. And as a historian and as someone that has researched this a lot over the last few years, especially, I find it sort of mind boggling that there are so many recreation dinners, that there are so many Titanic events based around this idea of recreating the food experience. And you would think, given how many books have been written and how much is written and speculated about, you'd think we have all the menus, but we don't. We have, um, we have the first class dining saloon menu for the night that the ship began to sink on April 14th. Uh, we do not have any of the menus from the restaurants. I have up here a little bit of a sampling of the menus, third class, second class, um, and then you'll see I'm about to read off part of the first class menu. So 
One of the first class menus that we do have a paper copy of because someone snuck it in their pocket that night sold in 2004 at an auction house in Manhattan for $85,000. so I, you know, to, to own um, these pieces of Titanic is a very, very expensive endeavor. A lot of them are at, at museums as well. And I will note that a lot of people who buy these things privately do end up loaning them out to collections. So they're not necessarily only sitting in private collections. Um, so in honor of the dinner we're going to have tonight, and as part of this, uh, I'm going to read out the first class full dining menu for the night of April. 14th, 1912. So get ready to have a psychosomatic stomach ache. Um, <laughs> so first hors d'oeuvres, of course, um, oysters were the thing. So they picked up a ton of oysters in Queenstown, which is now Cove in Ireland, and put them on board. And this was a very big deal. And we'll talk about it in a second, but having the refrigeration to store these was, was technology. It was very important. Um, so oysters, consomme Olga, which is a veal and beef broth, cream of barley soup, you could pick between the soups, uh, salmon with a mousseline sauce, which is egg yolks and champagne, uh, cucumber to finish that off, main cores and vegetables. Here we go. Filet mignon lily, which is very labor intensive, involves red wine reductions and medallions of foie gras. And I saw on the menu, I did sneak a peek at the menu for tonight, uh, and there's a marrow bordelaise, and it made me think of this. Um, the menu tonight be astounding. Um, saute of chicken, Lyonnaise, which I learned to pronounce properly, my friend and producer, Aaron who's here helped me. I was mispronouncing it. Um, and then a vegetable marrow farsi, which was, I saw one historian call it the puny attempt at a vegetarian option in all of this. It was very meat heavy, very sauce heavy. Uh, lamb with mint sauce, which of course, if you've seen the movie, Cal orders lamb for him for him and for Rose, very little mint sauce. So that was accurate. Uh, roast duckling with applesauce. Sirloin of beef, chateau potatoes, which are parboiled and then braised, and I believe this is on the menu as well tonight. Green peas, creamed carrots, boiled rice, parmentier potatoes, which are cubed and roasted with herbs, punch romaine, which I spoke about, uh, roast squab and cress. Um, this is still happening. This is still going. Cold asparagus vinaigrette, pate de foie gras, celery. As if the celery would do any good at this point. Like, I don't, I don't, like, what? I don't, I guess just a palate cleanse. Uh, and then for dessert, a Waldorf pudding, which is a custard with apples and walnuts, peaches and chartreuse jelly, which from my, what I've read online, anyone who has tried to recreate that has had a terrible experience. Don't recommend that. Uh, chocolate vanilla eclairs and French ice cream. So. That was one evening's meal. Now, the number one question I get when I talk about anything related to food is how people did not all gain weight on these voyages. And I I think the answer is a lot of them did, to be quite frank. And I think it's the same as if you go on a cruise today, we all joke about uh, gaining weight on a cruise. Um, So ending with the ice cream, you know, and I sat down to write this for today and think about what to talk to you about. I wanted to talk about one person I've never really gotten to, and he is a member of the crew. And 
we think he might have made that ice cream. So I was thinking about this French ice cream. And a lot of the sources tell us there was a dedicated ice man, and his name was Adolf Matman. And he, according to what some historians have interpreted, he made the American vanilla, the French vanilla ice cream on board, the other frozen treats on board. But it's also possible that his job was actually truly Iceman because of the refrigeration processes on board. There's a possibility what he was actually doing a lot of his time was managing ice for beverages. And that's the sort of elusive chase when it comes to Titanic. There are so many sources. There are so many firsthand accounts. There are historians who have worked for decades and decades to tirelessly, excuse me, try to piece together everything that happened on that ship. But it was only one voyage. And for people that worked on it, for people that documented, it's why we don't have very many photographs. People thought we would have so much more time with Titanic. So it was, the plan was to take a lot of photos along the way. The plan was to get a better sense of the daily runnings of the ship as the kinks were worn out or or figured out. And, you know, Thomas Andrews, the builder, he was on board with the guarantee group to figure out where the kinks were and to fix them. This was the first voyage, and it was supposed to be the first of so many. So this is the mystery with Titanic. So Adolf Matman, Titanic's Iceman, listed in the crew logs, We know a little bit about him, and I'll tell you about him, but we don't actually know exactly what he did on board. And for me, when I study Titanic, that's why I always go back, those little nooks and crannies, to try to figure out what was really going on. Um, So these are some things we know for certain, though, and we'll talk about him. The ship had an entire area on the aft port side called the refrigeration plant, and this supplied cooling for separate refrigerated areas for everything on board. So even the meats, uh, there was a separate area for game. There was a separate area for uh, any sort of beef. There was a separate area for the oysters, for the chicken. And that was revolutionary at the time. Flowers were kept in their own area, wines, cheeses. And each item could be stored at the exact temperature to keep it where it needed to be. There was also a separate refrigeration system running through the whole ship to keep cold water running to all of the systems and providing chilled refrigerated areas at all of the bars, which aren't the way we think of bars now, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, So all of this fed into five kitchens with this intricate system of management and crew who transported goods throughout the ship. It ran like a hotel, and its food service was no different. In fact, its food service was the absolute pinnacle of the White Star Line's commitment to luxury on their new liners during this era. And to make the system work, from ice making to desserts and glass goblets that would have gotten set right in front of someone like the Countess of Rothes, for example, there is this whole process of ice to table. And the idea of creating this amount of luxury out on open ocean required a lot of work and a lot of people to do that work. People like 
Adolf Matman. So he actually came from a rather wealthy family in Inwill, Switzerland. So they were wine merchants. And I love uncovering little details like this. So he was born in the wine shop in 1891 literally born in the wine shop. So he was not quite 20 years old when he boarded Titanic as crew. He had apprenticed as a pastry chef in Lucerne, uh, and he had worked at a couple of hotels as well. His first job at sea had been on Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic, which was very common. A huge portion of the crew from the Olympic ended up on Titanic for its maiden voyage. So he wrote home to his parents, we have a letter, that he intended to be on Titanic for just a few runs across the ocean. And then he had a great dream of working as a pastry chef in London, in the hotels, and he had connections there and was very hopeful that those doors would be opened for him. Uh, He did not make it in the sinking. His family waited for two weeks for the news And finally, uh, on April 30th, held a memorial service for him. So 900 crew, which were majority male, only 23 were women. I've actually done an episode for for the podcast on uh, the female uh, stewardesses, and it's an amazing story to tell, too. Unfortunately, I don't have time today. Uh, But the crew were organized into three departments, and these people are not spoken about enough, in my opinion. So first, there was the deck department, and these, of course, were the officers, boatswain, seamen, able seamen, master-at-arms, carpenter, and the survival rate of the of the deck department was actually 65% because they were manning these boats that left the ship. Then there's the engine department that literally people who are fueling the ship, the engineers, the firemen, uh, everybody in the coal rooms, the trimmers whose job literally was to, you know, the term trim the coal, keep it evenly on each side of the ship so that Nothing weird would happen. And it's backbreaking work. Um, I have read some of the accounts of, of these men in that situation and it's, it's unbelievable. They would faint. They would be brought. Water would be poured on them. They could maybe rest for an hour and they'd have to go right back in. Um, and then, oh, and I'm sorry, the survival rate on that crew was 21.9 in the engine department. And then with the lowest survival rate of all at 19.6% was the victualling department. And that would have included all of the stewards for the bedrooms, for the dining rooms, uh, the cooks, the bakers, basically anybody that made the ship run as a hotel, which again was one of the most important and crucial aims as far as the White Star Line was concerned. So 495 men and women like Mattman who were tasked with making life comfortable for passengers and truly, truly make it feel each each one of them was the only person aboard the ship. So these stewards were, they were rising before daybreak for their shifts. Some first class passengers took breakfast in their rooms as early as 7 a.m. These stewards were walking the decks. They were asking passengers all day, do you want some fresh, you know, warm bouillon on the, on the deck? So those scenes in the 1997 movie are 100% accurate. And I actually think there's a deleted scene from the 97 movie where Jack and Rose are walking on the promenade deck. It's after she's seen a sketchbook uh, and they run into a steward who 
asks Rose if she wants some warm soup. And she's just been talking about how the first class lifestyle is not, not her thing. And she's sick of it. And she says, no. Um, but so they would, you know, they would wander the ship and their job was to make sure that everybody had everything they wanted to ingest at every single moment of the day. And, you know, the Edwardian era named after, uh, King Edward, who apparently never stopped eating and was a big proponent of many coarse meals, heavy food, heavy sauces. That was the inspiration uh, for this era in food. And these Edwardians never stopped eating uh, by all accounts. So um, that my favorite story, I think, in terms of the job of a steward and food is the story involving Miss Margaret Graham. So her dad was the president of the American Can Company, which was the original backer for the Dixie Cup. So her family was the Dixie Cup fortune, is how it is always introduced. And I I will, I, I've got to do a little, sh- she's not here, I wish she was, but I have a good friend uh, named Katie who works at one of the Titanic museums, the one that's in Tennessee, and she portrays Margaret Graham so beautifully, and I went to a dinner there last year, and in walks literally Miss Margaret Graham, just like so many of you are dressed so beautifully as your characters. And I had never researched her much before, but meeting her uh, in person uh, really sparked my interest. And she she survived, and she remembers feeling the jar of the iceberg because she had a, a late-night chicken sandwich in her hands. And she remembers when the jar of the hit of the iceberg hit, her chicken fell in her lap. And she had called for a late night chicken sandwich. Was enjoying that, and I that story I've always it just really resonates with me because I think it. What I try to do on the podcast so much is it breaks down to I think a very simple core the humanity of of who we kind of all are. Like times change, people don't. It's so true, right? We could easily be sitting somewhere having a late night chicken sandwich when disaster strikes, and it and it and I mean it is fun. It's funny in a in a strange and morbid way, and I think. At, at our core, we are consumers, right? Like uh, to keep ourselves alive, we consume food all day. And so if you look at any history and Titanic, especially through a lens of food, we can see those tiny human moments that maybe sometimes we miss when we look so much at, um, you know, just a, oh, sorry about that. Um, just um, a macro lens. So one of the people that may have delivered the late night chicken sandwich was a man named Athol Frederick Broom. And in the 90s, RMS Titanic Inc. on one of their expeditions recovered a steward's jacket. Pictured here, it was balled up when they found it, but after it went through the preservation process, it was actually in quite good condition, as you can see. And it had the name Broom can't really see it much on the photo, scrawled inside the collar, much like a mother would write for their child, you know, headed to school. And it could have been his mom that wrote that. And it, it, it just, it breaks my heart to look at this jacket, but I wanted to tell his story. So 
Athol Broom was born in Middlesex, England in 1881. So he was 31 years old when he boarded Titanic. His mother was a dressmaker and a costumer. In 1903, I love the little snippets we can get of, of people when we go back through documents and sources and records. Um, in 1903, he appeared before the courts with his sister Midge for riding their bicycles on footpaths in Crowthorn, Berkshire. And they were fined 10 shillings. And went on their merry way. And I'm sure that they kept riding their bikes wherever they wanted to. Um, in 1910, he married a woman named Alice Shipper. Before Titanic, he served on Oceanic, which was also a White Star Line ship. And interestingly enough, and sadly, Oceanic would be in May of 1912, the very last ship to find any of the of the lifeboats or Titanic bodies. So there was one collapsible that was set adrift the night of the 15th, and or I'm sorry, the morning of the 15th after everyone was loaded. And the Oceanic found this. One month later, it had three bodies in it. Um, it's a heartbreaking story, but it was Oceanic who would find that. Um, so he was a first-class steward in the Veranda Cafe, which we'll talk about in just a second. And he had the job of serving the whims of these first-class passengers, like wanting a chicken sandwich at 11 o'clock at night. Um, he unfortunately did not make it in the sinking either. Um, so chef Charles Proctor, who is not pictured here, I apologize. I could not find a good photo of him. Uh, he was from Liverpool. He's head chef on board Titanic. And he was actually the son of a ship's baker. So it's in his family. And he had worked his way up from an assistant cook on vessels in the 1880s. Um, again, couldn't find a picture of him, but here are some people that he was very, very influenced by. So here we have Auguste Escoffier. If you know culinary history at all, you probably know who he is. He was a niece-born chef who simplified and modernized French cooking methods for the masses and for restaurants. For I mean, he was, like I mentioned, this was the era of the debut of the celebrity chef. He was it. He developed a partnership with Cesar Ritz in 1890. They established hotels across the world, including the famed Hotel Ritz in Paris in 1898. Uh, but there's another person that gets forgotten in this era and it drives me crazy because, of course, I study a lot of women's history uh, during this era. So another celebrity chef at the time was a woman named Rosa Lewis. And she had just as much influence on the menus of this time arguably even more in Britain than Escoffier, but she's forgotten. Uh, she was actually a former scullery maid who worked her way up to owning the Cavendish Hotel, and then she worked in the kitchens of dukes, uh, of the most elite people in Britain. She worked in the kitchen of William Waldorf Astor at Hever Castle. Uh, the elite vied for her personal catering abilities. She she cooked these exotic dishes, these heavy sauces, things like quail pudding. Uh, she designed specific dishes for the king of England. So, and this is a book that was written about her when she was still alive, the cover, but I don't know how we've lost her in history, but she's very important during this time. So these would have been the two biggest influences on the menus in first class on Titanic. Like I said, high fat, really rich sauces. There were, an, there was an entire team of prep cooks, vegetable cooks, uh, bakers. I mean, you, 
if you worked on Titanic, one of your you could just have the job of cutting vegetables, which blows my mind when I started reading about all of this. And you would wake up at six o'clock in the morning, maybe even earlier, and your job was to cut vegetables for that night's dinner. So this is just an intricate team of people that are working under Chef Charles Proctor. Um, and the chief baker on board was Charles Jockin, who a lot of you probably know the story of. He's in the 97 movie, hanging off the stern with Jack and Rose in his Baker White. He's the one who notoriously survived, he claimed, by having alcohol in his system. So he's often called the drunk baker of Titanic. I I don't have time to tell his whole story here, but I did do an episode on him a few months ago. So if you're interested, go in my back catalog. There's a lot of mythology to unpack about him. And I could have done this entire talk about just him, but it's, um, it's a pretty incredible story. Um, a couple of uh, other things. Let's see here. I think, oh my goodness, I think I have my slides in the wrong order. So please forgive me. I'm going to have to go back and forth. So you may wonder why I randomly have some dishes and a, a jar of olives up here. So I, I did a talk a few months ago that was about the artifacts found in the wreck site and some of my favorite ones and the stories behind them. And these are two that just continue to resonate in my mind and I always go back to, so I wanted to share. So on the left, we have some au gratin dishes that were found exactly like this. So at the bottom of the ocean, exactly in this formation, they had been scrubbed and cleaned and were waiting for the next day's service. And when they landed on the ocean floor, in this position and were recovered in this position. Uh, and it, to me, it's so, it would be so easy to look at a picture like this and just see dishes. I think everybody in this room probably is more in the other camp, which you look at a picture like this and you think about the heartbreak behind it. How many people worked to get these dishes clean and ready for the next day? And all of the people that would eat these elaborate dishes out of them the next day, if Titanic didn't end up at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and then the other one is a jar of olives, which they recovered from the bottom of the ocean, perfectly preserved. And I don't know about you, but I that blows my mind every time I look at it. I mean, it, you feel like you could just open it grab an olive and eat it. Nobody has, don't worry. So, um, I, and I don't think any, I don't think anybody ever will, but it's, it, it to me is probably, uh, one of the most moving items co connected to Titanic. Um, and I believe it is on display. I think it might be at the artifact exhibition in Florida right now. I'm not sure, but it does, um, it does make the rounds. So, the, I'm going to move into talking a little bit about how the dining rooms and restaurants were structured for the last um, little part of this tour of the ship. Uh, but before I do that, I did just want to mention second and third class a tiny bit. So the, all of the food that was served in second class ran through the same kitchens as first class. So the food in second class was very similar. And really, and again, I know a lot of you know this fact for sure, the food and the experience in second class on Titanic was very much akin to first class on other ships at the time. So if you were in second class, you were eating very, very well. And actually, if you were in third class, you were eating very well also. So it was a separate kitchen that ran on steam cooking. So again, talking about work, if you can imagine these men 
in this room with only steam-powered cooking mechanisms, I, their skin was probably red and burned. I cannot even imagine cooking everything by steam. But the menus in third class were great. I mean, for breakfast, jacket potatoes, fruit, fresh meats, um, you know, in the afternoon and into the evening, coffee is available, tea is available, scones, biscuits. Uh, a lot of people look at the third class menu and they see gruel on there. And I've had people ask me this before, like, oh, third class must have not been great, right? There's gruel on the menu, but gruel was actually a perfectly fine thing to eat, you know, similar to someone eating a bowl of oatmeal now. And that was served alongside 15 other things that were delicacies for a lot of these immigrants. So unfortunately, for a lot of immigrants on Titanic and third class, they were coming from far-fung places where they lived you know, I think about the Irish immigrants on board. Um, I visited Adderghul this past uh, summer where 14 Irish passengers came from one village of Adderghul to board Titanic. They had never been anywhere in their lives. And they had lived in tiny homes where, you know, eight kids might share a room. And they had eaten the simplest affair their entire life. And there is one uh, record of a, a third-class Irish passenger getting on board and seeing a banana for the first time. And, and, and they cut it up and they didn't know how to eat it. And it was miraculous and amazing for them. They have fresh fruit available. So it's, so the White Star Line definitely took time and attention and care with the third class menu as well, but it was cooked differently and it was obviously a different caliber of food. So I'll have to go back for this. Um, so the first class dining saloon which will be, in a way, entering tonight when we have dinner. We only have one photo uh, taken on April 11th of 1912. We have a lot of illustrations, though, and a lot of photos from the Olympic, which is obviously the sister ship. And it was done in the Jacobian style. Um, you can see here with alcoves and leaded windows. And again, I know I'm mentioning the movie a lot. I'm a big fan of the movie. Um, it's... James Cameron like recreated the room. I mean, if you watch the 97 movie, that is exactly what it looked like. And a lot of the extras and actors that were on set for that film said that when they came down the staircase and then eventually ended up in the set for the dining room, truly felt like they had time slipped uh, into another world and were back in 1912. Um, so there's also the a la carte restaurant, which is probably one of the most compelling stories of the entire ship. It was privately run by a man named Luigi Gatti, and he unfortunately passed away in the sinking. But it was designed after the Ritz restaurants that had been on board the Hamburg America lines. So these you know, German luxury liners that a lot of people who sailed on Titanic would have sailed on in the past. And they served French haute cuisine. And most of the first class passengers on Titanic actually referred to the a la carte restaurant as the Ritz, even though it technically was not. But they had been at the Ritz restaurants on other ships. So they just went ahead and used that vernacular. So we don't really know what was served in the a la carte restaurant. We don't have menus, but we have a lot of guesses. Caviar, lobster, spring pea soup, rose water, um, mint sorbet. Uh, these menus don't survive, but we can go through menus from other ships of the time, from other restaurants of the time. Uh, there was um, something called plover eggs that were served during this time. And do you want to know what the bird the plover is? I should have included a picture. It's a very odd looking little bird that apparently it's now illegal to 
use uh, for food in most countries. Um, but the eggs, I believe, were like a bluish gray. And actually, Rosa Lewis, who was the female chef I, I featured on a photo a few moments ago, she had very decadent recipes for plover eggs. And it, it's just amazing that only a little over 100 years ago, and so many of these recipes have just disappeared. And we don't, we're so removed from what those menus uh, were. So the a la carte restaurant was where uh, Captain Smith's famed dinner the night before uh, or the night of the sinking was. Uh, the Wideners, who were from Philadelphia, were hosting a party for him in the a la carte restaurant. Who's who of the first class were there? The mythology stands that it was his retirement party, but we actually have absolutely no evidence of that. Um, so Luigi Gatti, who ran the a la carte restaurant, uh, his body was one of the bodies recovered by the Mackay Bennett, uh, the recovery ship. And this was the description um, of the effects that were found with his body. A silver matchbox, a pair of cufflinks marked LG, a knife marked Imperial Restaurant, and a bunch of keys with the following tags. Comptroller's office restaurant first class entrance to B deck. It just gives you a sense of how like the labyrinth of what the ship was. And the other was restaurant manager entrance to cafe Parisian. And here we go. So this is the cafe Parisian. This is the veranda cafe, also known as Palm Court. As you can see, very similar when we have to look at them in black and white photos. So the Cafe Parisian was designed to mimic a French sidewalk cafe. And it served coffee in the afternoon. Women and children would gather here in the afternoons as well. It's one of the only spaces that James Cameron actually didn't replicate for the 97 movie. It would have been very expensive, I believe, uh, to do so. Then the Veranda Cafe uh, had ivy growing on trellises, uh, ivy-covered walls, white wicker, high arch windows. Basically, one of the modern the modern conceptions on this ship, right, was these first-class passengers want a full experience. Very similar to what Bob was talking about in his talk in terms of the Grand Hotel, that it's not just you know, dinner at seven and we're getting you across the ocean. It's that now there is a place where you can have a coffee and pretend that you're in Paris. Uh, what's interesting is that they found that, especially with the Veranda Cafe, people weren't really used to having these spaces on ships. So they sat kind of empty for a lot of the day and, and the passengers hadn't really figured out their schedule with using these spaces. So actually the children of first class apparently played at the Veranda Cafe and that became one of the big uh, uses. So who knows, Thomas Andrews probably scribbled that in his notebook and knowing how he worked, I would imagine that that was probably something they may have changed uh, in future voyages because he was a hundred percent about figuring out how people actually use the spaces on a ship and how to make the passengers uh, that much more comfortable. So I want to segue into just a fun, just a fun topic. So um, when I was in Cove this summer, uh, I saw Jeremiah Burke's message in a bottle, and I don't know if any of you have heard of it, uh, but Jeremiah Burke was an Irish passenger on board Titanic, and when he boarded the ship, his mom gave him a little bottle of holy water. 
And that bottle of, of that she had handed him was found washed up on a shore in County Cork, not far from where Titanic last saw land. Um, and inside was a note that said, goodbye all, Jeremiah Burke. And that has never been 100% authenticated. I don't think anyone thinks we can. Um, but according to the family, they truly believed it was authentic, that somehow this bottle had found its way back to the shores where he was from. Jeremiah Burke did not survive. But I was in Cove, formerly Queenstown, this summer and saw that little bottle. And if you know me, which none of you do really, um, but one person here does, I am I'm obsessed with glass bottles. Um, my mom from my earliest memories had this huge collection of glass bottles. Most of them were green. And a lot of the bottles recovered from Titanic are green, which is just a side note, but I've always been obsessed with the history of glass bottles. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the bottles that were found on the ocean floor during the the expeditions in the 80s and 90s. And so we get to talk about champagne and drinks, <laughs> which is fun, especially at a weekend like this uh, that we're at. So we're back to the drinks, which is where um, I like to be. So I get a lot of questions about ba- uh, bars on Titanic. And was there a bar on Titanic? A lot of the films and TV shows depict a bar. I think it's the is it the 96 miniseries where Mary Lou Henner like saddles up to a bar as Margaret Brown. Uh, but that's not what they looked like at all. So there was bar service, but they would be little dispense stations where the stewards and the crew would hand out, you know, or, or serve or hand over to another steward to serve the alcohol. So there weren't bars like we think about bars now on Titanic, at least not that we know. But like I said at the beginning of my talk, there's so much that we we don't know. But that's the the best understanding we can all, you know, as as researchers agree on. So there was a clear glass bottle found at the wreck site um, with a seal that was partly broken off, and then it said "and son Dublin." It had to be Irish whiskey. There's no way around it. But. We'll never know if it was John Jameson and Son, which produced over 1 million gallons of whiskey per year, or if it was John Power and Son, founded in 1791 in Dublin and by the 1880s took up six acres of real estate in central Dublin to produce this whiskey. But it was, it had to be one of them, but we'll never know. And again, those are the little mysteries uh, that I love about Titanic. We actually don't have a 100% complete manifest of every bottle or item that was on board in terms of brands and things like that. Uh, there was a bottle of Grand Marnier that was found at the wreck site as well, which is often enjoyed, of course, still as a little nip after dinner, but was very popular on board, usually served neat in a cordial glass. Um, there was beer on board. And in 2000, and, oh, I'm sorry, no, 94, uh, there were bottles of Bass Ale that were recovered uh, and commissioned, like the recovery efforts were commissioned and paid for by the Bass Ale company, uh, whoever owns them or owned them at that point, um, to recover these bottles off the ocean floor. Uh, that was the bottled beer on board. And it's actually been a little bit of a controversy because 
There's a lager called Wrexham Lager that is brewed in Wales. And that we know was on draft on Titanic. And Wrexham's actually been in kind of the cultural mind lately because of the, uh, the rise of the football soccer team there. Um, and the team was bought by, uh, Ryan Reynolds and there's a show. Uh, I believe it's on Hulu. I don't know. My husband watched it. I didn't. Uh, but Wrexham's sort of been in the cultural mind lately. Um, but their lager was on board on draft. And sometimes you'll see, it advertised because it still exists as the only beer on Titanic, but that wasn't true. The Bass Ale bottles were also on Titanic. Um, so there was, especially in first class, this kind of constant sense of merriment. Um, and by all accounts, champagne flowed on board. And at this time in British society, it was very common to break out the champagne in the morning with breakfast. It was very common to break out the champagne if you had people over for lunch. Uh, I probably would have just fallen asleep at 1 p.m. every day if I lived during this. I would I wouldn't have made it. I don't have don't have the tolerance. I don't think I would have made it. I would have had to fill mine with water and pretend I was drinking it. Um, but Titanic was notoriously not christened with champagne. White Star Line did not do that. But they did board with 63 cases of it on the ship, like I mentioned. And a few of the bottles that were found at the wreck, um, Brute bottles, there were, uh, there were bottles labeled Heidsick and Company, uh, Dinehard and Company. These are, sh- I wish that I could have gone in and researched every single company that a bottle was associated with and talked to you about it, but you would have all fallen asleep. So I won't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, bottles from Germany, bottles from France, so many champagne bottles. And I, it's sort of how I wanted to conclude today. And then I want to take some questions from you guys. Um, I was listening to a member of the RMS Titanic Inc. team uh, talking about some of the artifact recovery efforts in the 90s. And he told this incredible story of finding a champagne bottle, managing to get it up to the surface. And he and his entire team were so astounded that this fully intact champagne bottle was in their hands. They really hadn't given it a whole lot of thought in terms of the pressure of the bottle. So one of them is holding it. And, and, uh, everyone, everyone's fine. Um, but it, but he said in that moment, they, it was almost like they realized they had, you know, a bomb in their hands, which they did really technically. And so they all stood completely still and whispered to each other. And I don't, wouldn't have wanted to be the person that was holding the bottle. Uh, but they sort of had to talk each other through like, okay, let's maneuver it over here. And, and luckily it did not burst open. A miracle under the sun. But, uh, that's the image, you know, right? This champagne bottle somehow survived this horrible tragedy and is back in the open air, uh, in, you know, at that point, 1994. It's pretty mind blowing. And, the other thing that came to mind when I was thinking about sort of concluding this whole talk about food and the process of eating at this time. So Walter Lord, who wrote A Night to Remember, as I'm sure everyone in this room knows, and he also got to know a lot of the Titanic survivors when they were elderly, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Um, he interviewed Renee Harris, who had survived and she'd lost her husband, Henry Harris, in the sinking. And by the time Walter Lord 
met up with her. She did not have a lot of money. Her husband had been a theater, uh, a theater owner, uh, very wealthy New Yorker, was not wealthy anymore. And she was living in just like a public home, like a public nursing home in New York. But he took her some tins of caviar to sort of say, you know, thank you for talking to me. Here's kind of a, a relic of the bygone era, right? And she opens the caviar, takes a bite, and she said, this, this is a caviar, you know. And the, the processes that food, foods go through now, I mean, it's true, right? Like things don't taste the same as they probably did back then. So she probably wasn't putting on airs. She probably was just being honest. But it really got me thinking about how we romanticize the Titanic era. And I talk a lot about this on the podcast that it actually, it's quite dangerous to romanticize an era, right? Because when you do that, you erase a lot of social history, a lot of political history, a lot of the sort of long durée of, of, of things changing. You know, Titanic didn't sink and suddenly the world innocence was lost. That's not what happened. Um, but I think in terms of food, it's okay to romanticize it. I think there is a, a, it's, it's a little pocket of the research we can do where it is really beautiful to research the food, research the drink, especially if you're someone who loves food, loves beverages. I mean, I, my husband and I love to make cocktails. We love to research them and make them. And I think that's an area where it's okay to romanticize it. And I think tonight, when we have the beautiful dinner that this hotel has prepared and we have champagne and wine and cocktails, I think just, of course, raise a glass to everybody who was on the ship, but also everybody who worked on the ship. That's what I'll be doing tonight. So thank you for listening. And I, I would love to hear if any of you guys have questions. Um, that's always my favorite part when any anytime I do any sort of live event. So I think we have about ten minutes if anyone has a question. Yes. So what about the concept that we have today of the sommelier who's doing wine food pairings? Was that did that exist at that time and who did that type of thing on the Titanic? I, I don't think I but it's an excellent question. And I that is an area where I don't know a lot about the history of that profession. Um, but I can tell you I have not run across the presence of one onboard Titanic. Um, and I, if anybody has ever run across any research that differs from that, but I don't believe so. There's a great book. Um, there's a, uh, an author named Gunter Babler, and he wrote this book called A Guide to the Crew of Titanic. And it is, it's came out about 10 years ago. I think it is the most comprehensive list of every single person that worked on that ship. So if it's, if this kind of minutia is something you're interested in, definitely seek out that book. Um, but I've been through, I've been through every page of that book and I have not run across that. So, um, I think in terms of pairings with dinner, that would have already been, um, sort of pre-planned. I think, you know, when those courses came out, the wines that were presented with each course would have just been part of the planning process in the kitchen. And so I think you, I think you were just kind of served what was pre-planned for each uh, dish. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there was one, but now that this is going to burn a hole in my mind. So I've got to, I need to like look into this more and make sure I'm right. But that's a fantastic question. Yes. Oh, every single type imaginable. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I would 
no brands without doing some research. Um, but the, there are so many letters that we have um, that survived where me, women and men talk about the tea process on Titanic. But um, Irish and English breakfast are always the most commonly mentioned. Um, there's a lot of jasmine tea, um, oolong tea, green tea, um, obviously in creating, you know, a luxury experience that's like being at a hotel or restaurant, this would have been of utmost importance for um, everybody in the kitchen. So um, tea service was crucial. And a lot of the first class passengers took that in their rooms, too. So there were a lot of tea trays going around with the stewards constantly. So, yeah. Yes. No. There was a lot of there was a lot of variety, uh, and again, so kind of how I opened this whole thing. The heartbreaking thing is we don't have many surviving menus, but we do have the sort of anecdotal evidence from the first class passengers. Yes. So every meal would have been different, though I think there was a lot of repeats in terms of ingredients, just like you see at a modern day hotel or on a modern cruise ship, whatever it may be. So a rotating menu, um, but definitely like oysters. Oysters showed up a lot, but they would be prepared differently. And I think the menu that I read and the one that I showed is very representative of what each night would look like. But yes, definitely variety. Like one night, you know, a certain type of fish might be featured in the main courses and the next night you wouldn't see that fish, that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely a lot of variety, uh, but very similar to now where you, you know, say you stay, say you go on a European vacation and you stay at the same hotel for a week and you eat dinner at that hotel every week. By the end of the week, as good as the food may be, you're probably ready for something else. I think that's probably what it was like. <laughs> well, there wasn't, there wasn't the, no, that's a great question. So certainly not like the gluten awareness that we have these days. Um, yeah, it's, it, it wasn't as woven into the fabric of menu making as it is now. Uh, but there, there was definitely, there were, you could, especially in first class, like you could make uh, requests. You know, if you had any sort of dietary concern, you could make that request and the chef would be made aware, you know, your servers would be made aware. And there were actually quite a lot of Jewish passengers on board, and there was a dedicated kosher chef on board, which is really cool. And the um, the museum in Pigeon Forge had an exhibit on the Jewish passengers and the kosher cook uh, last summer, which was amazing to see. So, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Was there a brig on the ship? A what? A brig of jail. A jail? I don't know that there there was... There was in the... I didn't know that term. Um, <laughs> uh, in the master at arms area, there was there was an area to keep someone if they needed to be kept, but it wasn't a traditional looking jail. But um, yes, there was everything from if someone broke the law or if someone passed away on the ship. I mean, just like modern cruise lines do. There was, but that was very well hidden deep in the bowels of the the crew area. Yeah. But I actually don't know. I don't, that would be an interesting episode for me to do is to maybe like dig in and see if I can find, um, if anybody was, 
if that area was used at all during the voyage. I don't think so, but it would be interesting to find out like who was in charge of that and what the process on that would be. So you may have just given me an episode idea. So that's, <laughs> that's fun. That's an awesome question. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, all these artifacts that we recover have just incredible historical value, but I'm curious, as you read and develop these very intimate personal histories of people on board, how does that influence your take on whether or should we be taking artifacts off from the wreck? It's a, I'm glad you asked the question, and I'll, I'll sort of repeat it for the, for the mic for when people listen to this as an episode. So the question is kind of reconciling bringing artifacts up, um, the value that they bring to tell these stories, but then also obviously the moral debate about bringing them up. So there's a, there's, there, it's a huge debate uh, within the Titanic community. I would say it's the source of the most politicized debates um, among historians, researchers, um, people that travel the world meeting and having conferences about Titanic. It is the most debated issue. Um, I fall, and I think it's an important one because we have to talk about it. I mean, RMS Titanic Inc., they were granted sole possessorship rights of everything from the wreck. That in itself is something that should be dissected and talked about. I don't 100% agree with that decision, um, but it's a very, very complex decision. Um, I fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that bringing the objects up is, in terms of public history, probably the best and most important way we can tell Titanic's story. Um, and I've done lectures on just the artifacts, like the jar of olives, or there's some perfume vials that were brought up from the wreck that are incredible. So I think it's really important, but it has to be done in the most respectful way, and I, which it has, from my understanding. My problems, my questions with with the whole process more lie with where the artifacts end up. Um, I tend to have... I tend to have a problem when they end up in, you know, private hands never to be seen again. I also have a problem when they end up somewhere, you know, like Vegas, which is hard to get to for a lot of people and expensive to get to. And um, I don't know. So I don't know what the answer is. I would love to see them all traveling. I would love to see them all managed by a nonprofit. Um, but it's it's a very it's a big question. It's an important question. But ultimately, I'm glad that we have I, I am glad that we have them because I think that they represent, like I said, the most um, just human kind of nitty, like the nitty gritty of these people's stories. And I think when we see a suitcase or a perfume vial or a bottle or a dish, we're able to transport ourselves back to not just Titanic, but to those people's lives before Titanic, which I think is the most important part, understanding where they came from, especially the immigrants on board. So yeah, I mean, it's a really complex question. In fact, it's funny. I have not done an episode on this debate yet because I'm scared to. I don't like I and my and my listeners know that I'm always just really open and honest and frank on my episodes. But it's it, it, it. I need like a legal historian to help me with the research because there is so much going on, even just with the back and forth of who owns uh, the rec site. So yeah, it's. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I just rambled. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I think if I'll, 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 if I could have one of them in my house for a day and like look at them and be with them, it would probably be the perfume 
bottles. So there was a man on board named Adolfo Salfeld, and he was a perfume maker. He actually survived, um, but he unfortunately lived the rest of his life with a lot of survivor's guilt. Uh, but he was carrying vials of perfume, which he did not go back to his room to save. Um, he got on, on a boat. But flash forward to the 1990s, and they bring up a satchel. And uh, the historian Bill Souder, who's worked with Ti- RMS Titanic Inc., and I've, I've gotten to meet him, which was an amazing experience. He's worked with these artifacts more than anybody in the world. Uh, but they brought this satchel up, and he describes how they open this up and how everything else from Titanic you know, smells like death um, when they bring these artifacts up. But they opened up this satchel, and it smelled like beautiful flowers, and they realized that it was the perfume bottles. Um, and they survived. They were intact. And there's actually a company that took the scent and remade them into perfume in the 90s and early 2000s. And I think you can still get bottles of that on eBay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think if, if I could just be in a room with one artifact personally and really like get to know it and, and have it in my possession, even for a day, it would probably be those. Um, I know we've got, we're running a couple minutes behind, but if I'm in trouble, that's fine. Okay. I also okay. heard that the value of the jewelry recovered from the Titanic was $200 million. Does that bear any resemblance to reality in this? I have never looked into it specifically, but I would, if it, if that is in modern day, like translation and, and value, I, I 100% believe it. Yeah. Um, these first class passengers were traveling with all of their best jewels because they were going to these first class dinners. They were coming from Europe where they had been attending, uh, so many events and they had probably done some shopping. Um, so yeah, I, 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 again, I haven't researched it specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's correct. Um, and then there's always the question of where things should end up. Yeah. Um, so, circling back to sort of the story of the woman with the caviar, trying, trying it later, I was thinking about um, two things. One, trauma, the other guy with survivor's book, sort of maybe trauma could possibly have tainted her sort of tasting of the caviar. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the actual aging body and how taste buds change. Oh, of course, yeah. 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 No, that's, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but, um, the image, right, of this woman who survived Titanic, been through so much in her life, you know, in her tiny apartment at this age, like, you know, tasting caviar. But you're absolutely right. It's like all the other factors in her life also contributed to what that moment felt like, too. And, you know, in terms of, of Titanic, you know, PTSD was not openly discussed, um, or, you know, mental health not openly discussed for most, unfortunately, of even the 20th century. So a lot of the people that survived Titanic, um, ended up not in good shape mental health wise. And we have a lot, there's a lot of that documented. Unfortunately, there were several suicides after the fact. Um, but it's, you know, I don't know if, if maybe one day I'll write something long form about it. Maybe I should, but it's, it would be an amazing book, you know, for someone to really go through and talk about mental health and Titanic. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of research to be done, but you're absolutely right. It's like, you have to envision these people as whole people that also went through the rest of their life, even after Titanic. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, let's do one more, and then I don't, I don't want to go uh, too over because they may need the room for nothing, something else. I'm not sure. Was there any more? One more? Yeah. Um, so I thought I remember seeing the walking dogs were, were pets on board that were allowed to stay with passengers, and were there any pets that, that survived? 
Yes. And uh, this is, uh, speaking of the asters, which, I mean, we have an aster right here, right? <laughs> um, uh, yes. So um, Kitty, the Airedale Terrier, was on board with the asters. And there is this uh, very heartbreaking story of, of um, you know, Madeline seeing her maybe on the deck at the end. Um, but yes, there were dogs on board. There was a kennel on board. I believe some of them were in the kennel. So I think the lap dogs were maybe an exception, but many of them were kept in the kennel on board. Um, and there were a couple of lap dogs that survived the sinking of Titanic, which, as you can probably understand, angered quite a few people because there were babies that didn't survive and, you know, and, and a couple of lap dogs did. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a weird point of contention with Titanic people. It is an interesting history because there were quite a few animals on board. There was like a whole group of chickens on board, um, that someone was bringing over. And, uh, yeah. So the history of animals on board, I actually, I have a listener who asked me about it a few weeks ago. And so I'm doing some research currently to do it. I do bonus episodes, uh, for my Patreon. And so I, it's actually the one I'm researching right now. Um, so pretty soon I'll know more. I don't know a ton, but yes, um, the dog, and there is the mythology of the dogs being let loose at the end. Um, some people think it was JJ Astor that went and let the dogs loose so that they would have a chance to survive. And I mean, that a hundred percent could be true. We'll just never know. So there we go. It's so awesome that you were sitting right here. That's perfect. Um, well, thank you guys so much. This was lovely. And I am I just, um, it, it's so wonderful to, thank you. It's so wonderful. I've met a few of you over the last day and, and hopefully I'll meet a few more uh, tonight at dinner. But thank you. I. It's just a dream come true to get to come here. I've always wanted to come to Mackinac and to be here doing the podcast with you, bucket list, dream come true. So thank you. Thank you so much.